Morning, am I on? Can you hear me? Fantastic. Uh, as Duncan said, um, if it's your first time joining us, we're in the middle of a series about people meeting Jesus and encountering him. And one of the things I've loved listening to some of the messages in this series is how we get to see these people, how Jesus sees them. And, through, and we relate to these people, and through that, we get a glimpse of how Jesus sees us. That said, when I, I remember many years ago first reading the passage we're looking at this morning, which is Mark chapter 5, if you want to put your, your finger in it, um, I found it very difficult to relate myself to this man. I found it very difficult to, to find parallels with which I could compare myself to him. And this story is a tricky one to talk about because this is a man who is possessed by what we learn is many demons. And demons are a difficult thing. We don't necessarily talk about them that much. And I think we often have misconceptions of what they are. And those mis misconceptions may come from incomplete or incorrect teachings, or they may come from misrepresentations in the media, in big blockbuster movies where we see that a demon is a big, strong, powerful monster that the hero has to physically fight in order to overcome, or that a demon is a sparkly vampire who has good in him. He just needs to be loved to bring it out. For the record, I've not seen or read Twilight, but I think that's what it's about. <laughs> but both of these examples are so far from the reality we see. In this passage, the demons we see are agents of the enemy. And what they are doing is they are exerting the enemy's control over this man. They are dominating this man. They are controlling his, his thoughts, his words, his actions. And we rarely see the enemy working in this way. In present day, and even outside of the Gospels, we see that the enemy doesn't, doesn't usually act like this, but he's a lot more underhanded and uses the tactics of lies and deceit and undermining God's glory. A prime example being in the book of Genesis, when the enemy in the guise of a serpent comes to Eve and starts to undermine God's grace and God's gifts towards her and plants the lie in her head that she can take control of her own life, that she doesn't need God. And that's how we, we more often see the enemy working in our lives and elsewhere in, in the Bible. And the reason we see it act the way it does when Jesus turns up is because it knows it's got nowhere to hide. The enemy is seeking to undermine Jesus' work, to, to destroy or delay his kingdom. But he knows ultimately when Jesus turns up, there is no power to be had. There is no control for the enemy to be had. And that's what we see in this passage. So it's Mark chapter 5, starting at the beginning, and the words will appear on the screen. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, this is Jesus saying to the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus said to him, What is your name? 
And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told him the city and the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to see, uh, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed, uh, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him. And everyone marveled. I want to start with setting a little bit of context for this journey that Jesus is taking. Now, we, we hear that he goes to the country of the Gerasenes, and that may not mean much to us right now, but to the people of the time who would be hearing this story, to the people who have seen Jesus as he starts his ministry, this would be very, very confusing, because they are starting to see Jesus as this promise fulfillment to the Jewish people, as, as potentially their Messiah. But as far as they know, he's just that. He's, he's the fulfillment of a promise to the Jewish people. And where he's going is to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the land of the Gentiles, people who, as far as they thought, were, were outside of God's promises. But Jesus is very intentional about this journey. If we flick back about half a chapter, we will see that on that crossing across the Sea of Galilee, there came a great and terrifying storm, so terrifying to the point where the disciples thought they were going to die until Jesus calmed it. So we see that Jesus, in order to expand his kingdom beyond the people of Judea, beyond the people who thought they were God's chosen people, crossing an ocean, and then when he has this encounter, he goes straight back. So this is clearly, to, to make that crossing for, for this one encounter, it's a very important step in Jesus' ministry. And as I said, it is him expanding his kingdom. So I think it is no surprise that as soon as we see Jesus step off of that boat to start to claim the kingdom beyond what was thought, we see the enemy immediately. And we see, when we look at what the enemy has done to this man, we see the enemy's intent and we see the enemy's methods and his tactics. We don't know much about where this man came from, what he did before all of this had happened. But we're told at the end that he goes back to his friends and he goes back to his home, which tells us that he was probably a functioning member of society. He, he would have had a livelihood. He may have had a family. He may, may have had children that he was raising. And over time, the enemy has robbed him of all of this. And it probably didn't go one day perfect member of society, fully functioning to what we see here. The enemy probably started with lies, with deceit, with undermining the good that was in this man's life. 
And we see that the people around him tried to help him or at least control him. They, they chained him up. And that was probably for other people's safety, but also maybe to find some way of helping him to see if they could draw this demon out, to see if they could restore him to a functioning member of society. But the enemy did not want that. The enemy wanted him far away from his community. They want him far away from his society. And so the enemy gave him the strength to break those shackles and drove him out into the desert. This story is actually accounted in, um, in three of the four Gospels. And in, in the story we're told in Luke, we're told that the demons actively drove him into the desert, away from people, away from anyone who could speak against the lies that the enemy was, was sowing in this man's heart. And then... It's upon the man that he finds his home among the tombs, among the people who are dead, among the people who would have been seen as unclean. The enemy wants this man somewhere where no one will come to him, where no one will find him, where no one will help him. Because that's where the enemy can continue to work on him. That's where the enemy can, can sow further doubt and further lies. We sang earlier, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Whatever that guilt is, whatever this man's done that has started him on this journey, the enemy constantly told him about it. And he, he took that guilt and he grew it until it became shame. And this man became identified with his shame. And I want to make a distinction between those two concepts, guilt and shame, because we can often use those words interchangeably, but they're actually quite different. Guilt, although we don't like to experience it, can actually be a very positive, helpful feeling. If we've done something wrong and we feel guilty, guilt tells us actually that we, we can fix that, we can, we can change that, and that's what God wants us to do. But shame is entirely different. Where guilt tells us we've done something wrong, shame tells us we are something wrong. And Jesus wants to speak against that in this man's life. Because as we can see, as the shame has, has taken control of him, he has given himself completely over. He has lost all control to, to the, enemy's, the enemy's agents within him. When Jesus asks him his name, he responds with legion. This tells us two things. One, that this man has forsaken his name and his, his identity has become tied up with whatever enemy is within him, with whatever he has done that led to this. But the word legion would also paint a picture in the original audience of the Roman legion that were occupying Judea, that were exerting their control over the region and that were taking away the freedom of the people. This mirroring is also seen later in the, the pig's eventual destination, the demon's eventual destination, which is the pigs. Now, the legion occupying Judea at the time was the 10th Roman legion, and their standard, their, their, the mascot on their flags, was a boar. So between the name legion and where we see the pigs go, this, this story is likening the control of the enemy in this man's life to the control of an oppressive regime of the oppressive Roman Empire, both of which Jesus, people feel Jesus has come to free them from, to give them something new so that they don't have to be under the thumb of the enemy or 
the, the powers of this world anymore. And as these demons have festered, as these demons have taken away this man's identity, we see some very disturbing behavior. We see him isolating himself. We see him crying out. We see him cutting himself with stones. We see what we would look at today and describe as a mental health crisis. And that's difficult to talk about. We are not good in society today about uh, talking about mental health. We see it as harder to understand and to treat as physical health. And that's partially because it is. It is more complicated. And a lot of the times when we talk about healing and Jesus' power to heal, our mind goes straight to physical healing. Because when we talk about mental health, when we talk about depression, when we talk about anxiety, those things are so often seen as being a part of us in the same way that this man is seeing his sin as, a, as an inseparable part of him. And because we see these things as parts of ourselves that maybe can't be helped, we think that it's something we've done that has brought this on. We think that it is our fault, and that again feeds the shame that the enemy wants us to feel. And it's worth noting that in, in, in this region, in the first century, that actually physical pain was often seen like that too. If someone was physically afflicted, people would see it as a sign of, of demons or a sign of sin. And I want to be clear that suffering from a mental health challenge or an affliction like this does not mean you're possessed by a demon. But what it does mean is but these afflictions are still from the enemy. They are not from Jesus. And Jesus does not want them in our lives. Jesus cares just as much about mental health as he does about physical Last week, Jem talked about the woman, be, the, the woman with the bleed being healed completely. And Jesus is here today to heal us completely, physically, spiritually, and mentally. And as soon as this man and the demons in him see Jesus, the demons know what he's there to do. As I said earlier, that Jesus has complete power over these demons, and they know when they see him, they have nowhere to hide. And we may think that they would run away to try to avoid him, but Jesus' authority over them is far too strong for that. And instead, what they do is they run straight to him, and they fall, them, they fall down on their knees before him. And this is an act of both submission and worship. Because they know that their gig is up. They know that everything that they had, all the control, all the power they had, has melted away in the presence of Jesus. Where the enemy would hide in darkness and shadows, Jesus brings the light, and there is no shadow in which for the enemy to hide. Where the enemy plants seeds of lies and deceit in our hearts, Jesus brings overwhelming truth. And when the enemy builds feelings of shame, feelings of worthlessness. Jesus brings glory that he bestows upon us, cancelling out all the work of the enemy. And despite this submission and this worship that the enemy is engaging in, the enemy is still crying out and is still shouting at Jesus. And we see a very hectic scene. The, the passage gives us 
the demon's lines, and then it gives us what Jesus said to the demon. And so we see this very chaotic moment. Now, I have done a number of jobs in my life that have involved being shouted at, often incoherently. And when I'm being shouted at, sometimes two words spring to mind that I think are going to solve everything. Calm down. It has never worked. Not once have I told someone who was shouting at me to calm down, and it's worked. Fortunately, Jesus clearly knows this, and he, he doesn't bother with, with idle, generic commands like calm down. He is specific. He speaks to the enemy in this man, and he says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And in doing this, he does something really significant that I don't think anyone has done for this man for a long time. He tells him that the sin and the demons and the man are two separate things. And he's very clear that they do not belong together. He's saying, come out of the man. And he wants to do that for us. Whatever sin we've experienced, whatever shame we may be experiencing, it is not something that Jesus wants in our life. It's something that Jesus wants to bring out. And when he brings the, the demons out of this man, he demonstrates very clearly what the enemy is and what he does. He sends the demons into the pigs, which it's worth noting was, was what they asked for. And I wonder if the man had, had a part in that. I wonder if the man wanted these things that had become his identity. If they can't be in him, maybe they, maybe they could be nearby. And I think sometimes we can do that with areas of sin in our lives. We think, if I want to deal with this, but I kind of want it nearby because then I feel like I have control over it. But the thing is, when we see what the enemy does to these pigs, immediately they are, they are dro dro driven down the hillside and into the water and into death. We see that we are not the ones who have control over sin. Jesus is. And Jesus wants this sin out of our lives. He does not want it to fester. He wants our identity to be in him, not in the, the things that we have done because they are fleeting and temporary. But when we put ourselves in Jesus, that is eternal and that is unbreakable. But in order to do that, as we see here, we have to submit entirely to Jesus. The Bible, in Romans chapter 6, we are told that now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And that feels so counterintuitive that freedom from this sin means becoming a slave. But when I look at it, I would have it no other way. If freedom from sin meant that we gain control of our lives, we're just going to end up back in sin. Because that's how it always happens. So as this man has given himself to Jesus entirely and completely, Jesus has pulled the sin entirely out of him and cast it aside and shows us what he has done to sin. And then later in his ministry, at the end of his ministry, in, well, near the end of his ministry, in fact, he would give the ultimate demonstration of his power over sin. He would be the lamb that we were singing about earlier, and he would give his life on a cross. And when he died on that cross, if you have given yourself to Jesus, all of your sin is laid on him. 
any, any shame that you experience has died with him on that cross. And as Jesus resurrected three days later, so we are resurrected to eternal life, free from the grip of sin, free from the grip of the enemy. And the difference that makes to this man is stark and clear. When we pick the story back up, we see the man, and this is probably about a few hours later, given that the the herdsmen have gone and told people in the city and then everyone's come out. And this man is there, sat down. He's clothed, which suggests he was naked earlier. And I suspect that's not just because of a freak 40-degree heat wave. (laughs) But he is completely changed. The people barely recognize him. And I can't imagine how amazing those few hours would have been. We, in contributions in worship earlier, we heard about being a bruised, not bruised wick, a bruised weed, a bruised, that's hard to say, bruised reed, <laughs> or a smoldering wick. If that's how we can feel at the end of a hard week, imagine how this man feels. But it doesn't stop Jesus bringing him close and just spending time with him. So that, that tells us that even after we submit ourselves to Christ, even after we give him everything, he, still, he, he doesn't just leave us to it. He wants to continue spending time with us, building us up for a purpose that we're about to see. You see, after, after this time, this, this man is completely sold out for Jesus, and he, he wants to go with him. He begs to, to continue being with Jesus. But Jesus has a little bit of a different plan. He says to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And if I try to imagine myself in this man's shoes, if he has shoes yet, that sounds terrifying. To go back to these men, to this society who have seen you at your worst, who have seen what he has done, who probably know what he's done far better than than we can glean from this passage, and to tell them about this encounter when he has just seen all the people turn up and shouting at Jesus and telling them to leave. Jesus is now saying, no, go, go back to them, those people who just shouted at me, and tell them about me. I think we can often feel ill prepared for the things we feel God calling us towards. And like this man, we might feel like we just want to spend that bit more time with Jesus so that we can be ready to go and talk to our family and our friends and our colleagues about God. But Jesus is saying, no, you're ready now. And yes, when when we give ourselves to Jesus, the transformation that happens is a process, as we were saying earlier. And it's not complete, but it, it is assured. Just because your transformation is not entirely complete yet does not mean it is not certain that it will be completed in the fullness of time. And so we don't fully know how this man's ministry went. We're told that all the people marveled, which is a stark change from what what they had just experienced. But we're not entirely sure how many of them would have from that given themselves to Jesus. However, a few years later, when Jesus had, had died and been resurrected and ascended to heaven, he sent his people out to make disciples of every nation. And I can imagine the, the early apostles, maybe Paul, who was, the, who was we, we often talk about as the first evangelist of the Gentiles, when actually it seems to be this man. 
but Paul and his friends turning up and talking about Jesus and his transformation. And people would hear this and think, actually, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's that guy who turned up and, and caused that big mess, and then that man was completely changed and completely healed. And off the back of that, I've no doubt that, that they themselves were then transformed. They gave themselves to Jesus. Because Jesus, when he transforms us, he makes us into his work. We don't just do his work, we are his work. And who he makes us speaks of his glory, speaks of his truth, speaks of his grace, speaks of his promises that are for everyone. Such is the transformation that we see when we give ourselves fully to Jesus. And I'm going to close with a passage from Ephesians, which if you were here last week, it's probably going to sound a little bit familiar. But it speaks of where we've come from and where we are destined for. And this is the last thing I'm going to read. So if the band want to get ready. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what Jesus calls us to, to submit to him, to give ourselves entirely to him, and to be entirely transformed.